Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Zinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. Hello, friends. We are so happy to welcome Lynn Pager. We have this incredible rom-com with so much tension. It's so modern. It's all of these things that are thrown in that I think are very much of the time. Thank you so much for having me. How are you guys today? We're good. And you're right. This is the perfect like February read. <laughs> so much fun to dive into it. I would argue it's the perfect February read for 2024. You will get into this in a bit, but I just wanted to say that I really admired how much resistance there was in your characters. Um, oh, good. <laughs> it just, it felt very modern, very of the moment and something that I suspect is a trend we'll see in rom-coms to come. Wonderful. <laughs> so yeah, let, let, let's let's go back. Tell us your story. How long have you been writing? What's the journey been like? How did you get your agent? Tell us everything. My journey was really, really long. Like I probably wrote for close to 15 years before I got an agent. Wow. But, but you know, it's one of those things where when you look back, hindsight's twenty twenty. And I was writing a lot of stuff that probably wasn't necessarily what I was meant to be writing. So I feel like I kind of spun my wheels for a lot of years. And, you know, and your kids are little and, and you write when you have time. And um, so a lot of times I would write and then I'd put it away for a while and then come back to it. So I, I wrote technically for like 15 years. Then I finally got one agent to request a full. And that was when I switched to YA instead of just contemporary romance. And then um, I got my agent. But the first book that went out on submission it made it to a couple like acquisition meetings, but it didn't actually sell and we ended up shelving it. But then the next book I wrote was um, Better Than the Movies, which was a YA that did sell. So then it wasn't until during the pandemic, my agent was like, you know, contractually, you can't really do anything in YA right now because you're just sitting here. You should write an adult rom-com. And that's originally for 15 years what I was trying to make happen. So I was like, that sounds great. And I wrote Mr. Wrong Number, and then we got a book deal with that, and now we're rolling. That's so <laughs> interesting. You were saved by the option clause. I was, absolutely. Okay, <laughs> I, don't have have it, I don't understand this. Like, I'm, like, you guys are talking, and I know that people out there don't, what is an option clause? Why were you stuck? Like, I just think that's, well, I, I have no idea. I should know what this. What it is, is you get a book contract, and especially, like, if it's more than one, like, like with Better in the Movies, it was a two-book contract. And basically the option clause is your publisher saying, whatever you write next, we get the first shot to look at it and make an offer. And then, you know, it, you either take it or you can take it wide and let other publishers see it. But a lot of times in the option clause, they don't have to look at it until like after your second book comes out. So essentially, like you could be writing all day, but your next, whatever you're working on next, isn't going to see anybody for a very long time, whether it be your publisher or the world. So so it's like, you're just sort of like, okay, we're just in a holding pattern. And that's when she was like, but adults, you know, because for my contract, it was specific to young adult rom-com. So she's like, you should write an adult rom-com. So then that worked out. <laughs> I love that. And I love how you started somewhere, you went somewhere else and you ended up back in your original place. Right. So interesting. It, it ended up feeling super organic. Like, even though that was never the way I would have chosen it to be, then when I wrote the adult rom-com, it just felt so natural. Like, I feel like I wrote it so fast. Like, it was just like, 
15 years of waiting to come out, you know? And then that one was like the dream story where we put it out on submission and got an offer like right away and had multiple offers. So it was like the dream come true that I daydreamed about for 15 years, you know? Well, but you know, so let's, let's talk about this. So 15 years and I totally understand the raising kids and that, that run around where you feel like you're writing, but sometimes you're just being pulled in a thousand different directions. So like, was it like, was 15 years, but maybe it was just like three years because you know, it's confusing, but all of that time learning and building scenes and drafting and doing all the things actually made writing this easy. It wasn't easy. It's because you did all the other work. So I just want to like make sure that we all understand that like you've done your work to make it easy. And that's absolutely it is, you know, you always hear people give the advice, like read all the time, you know, when you want to write and you're like, yeah, 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 I know. But I really do feel like if you read all the time, that does make writing your book easier. Your brain remembers paragraph structure and the flow and things like that. So I feel like writing for years when you're not getting anywhere, even though it feels like it sucks, it really is adding and, and your brain is learning all of this. And, and it did. That's what made it easy as I had been doing it for a million years. Yeah. And it felt like failure. And it just turned out it was the long game, you know? Well, you were preparing for 15 years for your overnight success, right? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Are there things you wish you could go back in time and tell earlier writer self? Oh, absolutely. Well, I would totally go back in time and tell myself to dedicate certain time periods for writing. Like what I mean is, is you always say like, oh, you know, I'll write when I have time. And when in life do we ever have time for anything? But it wasn't until my, my last daughter was born that for some reason it all was starting to come together. And when she was born, I dedicated like when she napped, you know, it was just two hours in afternoon, but I would close myself in the office upstairs and I would write. And I'd never done that before because it was, it's only two hours. What are you going to accomplish with two hours? And then on Friday and Saturday nights, as soon as she went to bed, I would go up to my office and I would chug energy drinks and I would write from when she went to bed at 730 until as late as I could possibly stay up. And I did that until basically a year ago when I finally stopped the day job and just setting aside that regular time, I feel like helps you create just this cohesive thread in your writing. And it makes such a difference. I feel like for so many years when people would be like, you know, you need to prioritize your writing. And I would look at all my little kids and my job and my husband. And I would be like, you find me the time, like make this make sense. I don't have the time. And it wasn't until I later that I realized that even if it's one hour a week, that makes a huge difference. Also, I think that when you only have a small amount of time, I feel like it creates a sense of urgency where if you only have an hour, you're not going to be scrolling through TikTok or spacing off. I feel like I was so productive in the those set aside amounts of time because I knew like this was my time to write. So it really added a lot of focus, I think, that I don't necessarily have. If you're like, you have all weekend to write, then you're kind of all over the place a little bit more. Right. I think when you have, when it's a practice, then your brain is preparing. If you know Mm -hmm. at like nine o'clock, you're going to go in there and you're going to sit for 45 minutes. You're going to wake up that morning. You're going to be thinking about it when you're making lunches. You're going to be like thinking about when you're walking the dog. So when you sit down, you're going to kind of like, I think there's an energetic promise that we make to ourselves. Absolutely. That is a hundred percent. I think what it is. I'm fascinated by creativity. I think it's, 
I think it's like, it's like, it's a torch. Sometimes it blows really hard. And sometimes it's just like, like this glimmer. And you're, you know, when you're trying, you're camping and you're like blowing the water, you know, the air on it. And you're just like, just come back. <laughs> if yeah. you leave it too long, it's kind of sad. Um, what was your querying process like? A million rejections. I feel like for a lot of years I queried and in hindsight, what I look back on when people ask me advice about querying, this is when I perk up and I'm like, I feel like I understand it more than I ever did when I was doing it yeah. is that I used to, um, well, I feel like a lot of what I wrote for a lot of those years where I wasn't getting a book deal is I feel like I was writing a really good example of a very adequate or, or even if I was being egomaniacal, goodish version of a romance novel. You know, it felt like a lot of what else is out there, but when you're querying, you have agents who are overworked and underpaid and all they want to do is find something where they're like, I need to read more. I can sell this. So when I was sending out letters about a book where it's like, these are two people who used to know each other, you know, then they were gone. Now they're in love again. You're like, yeah, been there, done that. And it wasn't until later that I was like, you need to have just that little, like that story, but they're in space or that story but they have 20 minutes to decide or the world's going to blow up. You know, I mean, obviously that's absurd, but, but I feel like I didn't realize I needed to focus more on, on the higher concepts, not necessarily a bonkers high concept, but something to make it unique. So I queried for a million years, got a million rejections. And I feel like with my young adult novel, I had a lot better query letter. Instead of trying to put like, I won an RWA contest five years ago. You know, I, I live in Omaha, blah, blah, blah. I, I focus more on making it like this is the back of the book. Like this happened. They say these words, the world's going to explode. And I feel like it was the first time that I got, you know, responses. So everybody's book is different, but I feel like it took me a long time to realize that you're just selling this book. Of course, you're selling yourself ultimately, but all you need is to get that agent to want to read more. And I was thinking too resume-ish about my query. That's so interesting too, because you're talking about how you need the thing that sets you apart. And I agree, but within the constraints of romance, you actually have more rules than just about any other genre. Um, you could put them in space and make them about to blow up, but that would, you know, knock you into something else. So right. if, if you are writing within these rules, you know, there has to be a happily ever after. There has to be, you know, usually one love interest. She's not really allowed to have a boyfriend going in, stuff like that. Right. How do you make it stand out when it's a contemporary romance? You know, I feel like it's it's more drilling into details, like a sense of urgency or, you know, like you're doing fake dating. Well, why are they fake dating? Because she needs to get this job where they're deciding next week who's qualified to take over. I feel like adding urgency or adding a uniqueness to the situation is really kind of where it can dial it in. So it's when high concept in romance isn't necessarily high concepts like it is in general fiction, like, you know, the craziest thing. But high concept is, you know, when you pick up the back of that book and you're reading it and you're like, oh, that's a twist. Like just that little something that makes it. Oh, a little bit different. So I don't know. It's that je ne sais quoi. Like you can't exactly explain what it is, but you know what it is when you see it. Well, I would say that happily never after. <laughs> it is such a great title. Does that. <laughs> I mean, I like, I thought it was just such an amazing concept. I thought it launched so well. So tell us about your, the how did you come up with the idea from, sorry, it's early still. 
How did you come up with the with the idea for Happily Never After? You know, the idea was kind of one of those one-offs that you put in your notes section in your phone. Like I was watching, I don't even remember what it was, something on TV or in the movies. And they said that line that I don't even think they really say in weddings anymore. But the if anyone here knows any reason these two should not be joined. And I just remember thinking like, that would be hilarious if there was somebody you could pay to say that. And I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. And I put it in my notes in my phone because, you know, a lot of times, I'm sure you guys know this, when you're brainstorming an idea, you'll have something that works, but you'll brainstorm it through like a meet cute and then you kind of walk away from it. So I put it in my phone section and forgot about it. And then back to the option clause, when I was trying to come up with the book idea for my option material after Mr. Wrong Number, I came up with an idea that I can't remember if it was my agent or my editor didn't really like. They, like it was a, a story about two writers and they were like, right now we've got a couple other titles with two writers as the couple, you know, do you have something else? And it was one of those where I'm brainstorming, like, what else can I work with? And I came across that and then just started brainstorming it and and it became something. Would you be willing to read us your first page? And if you want to read a little bit more, I don't know where your first page stops. So got it. Okay. Um, And the first page is from Sophie's point of view because it's a dual POV. So the moment my dad raised my veil, kissed my cheek and handed me off to Stuart, I wanted to throw up. No, first I wanted to punch my groom right in his besotted smile. Then I wanted to vomit. Instead, I took his arm and grinned back at him like a good bride. The pastor started speaking, launching into his cookie cutter TED talk about true love. And my heart was racing as I waited. I swear I could feel 400 sets of eyes burning into the back of my Jacqueline Ferkins wedding gown as I heard nothing but the sound of my panicked pulse pounding through my veins and reverberating in my eardrums. Was he already there, seated amongst the guests? Was he going to burst through the doors yelling? And God, what if he was a no-show? The photographer, kneeling just to my right, took a photo of my face as I listened to Pastor Pete's love lies. So I turned up my lips and attempted to project bridal joy. You look so nervous, Stuart whispered, giving me a small smile. I honestly don't know how I didn't throat punch him at that moment. Welcome, loved ones, the pastor said, beaming at the congregation as we spoke. We are gathered here today to join together Sophie and Stuart in holy matrimony. I felt my breath hitch unsteady as he kept yammering, leading us closer to the moment. Something about the twinkling lights and evergreen boughs that we'd painstakingly selected for our December wedding felt garish to me all of a sudden, as if the hobo ghost from Polar Express was going to show up in the back of the church and mock me for my foolishness. And he wouldn't be wrong. Please, 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 I thought, panic tightening in my chest. With every word the pastor spoke, my anxiety grew. Stuart squeezed my trembling hand, the ever-supportive fiancé, and I squeezed back hard enough to make him look at me in surprise. Should anyone present know of any reason that this couple should not be joined in holy matrimony, speak now or forever hold your I do. A collective gasp shot through the large chapel, and when I turned around, the man standing up was not at all what I expected. He was big and tall and impeccably dressed. Charcoal suit, white shirt, gray tie, and matching pocket square. He looked like Henry Cavill's stunt double or something, but with darker hair and more intense eyes. I guess that's a stopping point. Yeah, line. that's good. Yay. Okay, so why don't you just quickly summarize what is about to happen next? What is about to happen next is Sophie found out that her fiance was cheating, but Sophie's future father-in-law is her father's boss. So she doesn't want to be the one to call up the wedding because it might reflect badly upon her father and he might end up losing, you know, a lifetime of his career. So her friend, her, her bridesmaid knows a friend of a friend who knows of some guy that she, so apparently you can pay to say I do and object to a wedding. So her friend paid Max 
to object to the wedding. So basically, he stands up, says he objects, has some nice words to say to get her off the hook, and the wedding ends with a brawl. Afterwards, when Sophie actually meets Max, because they have to pay him, they share some cocktails, and she learns that he's kind of altruistic. You know, he takes money for this, but he does it kind of because he doesn't necessarily want to see people destroy their lives by getting married. So he kind of does it more as a favor to people. So she starts talking to him and jokes around like, you know, I I, I could see myself doing that. I can be the objectress to your objector. (laughs) And they kind of laugh and they go their separate ways. And then a few months later, she gets a text from Max saying, you know, I need your help. I need you to object to a wedding with me. So that is where it goes from there. I mean, it's so hysterical. And I thought this the tension line between these two characters and, and doing a, a dual point of view. Like, tell us how you, you know, manage that. You know, I'm a sucker for dual POV. Like my first, my first two books were not. And then once I started writing like bonus chapters for readers, like as pre-ordered incentives, and they would be like, oh, can we have this scene from Wes's point of view? Then I started, I I love writing, you know, the female writing a male. I love writing his point of view. So automatically I knew that it was going to be dual POV. And I just love the process of going back and forth in scenes between the two of them. Because I love that you can be in her head, you know, love is awful. I hate it. And then you switch to his head and he's saying he's in agreement, but you see him sort of having emotions for her. And I I love you using dual POV that way. I grew up reading, you know, I used to love reading old Sandra Brown books when it was back when she did romance all the time instead of like the thriller she does now. And um, I just, she was just a master at using their point of view to ratchet up the tension where they say one thing, but you know everything else that's going on in their head. So I just had a lot of fun with that. Well, and if we hadn't had his point of view, it would have all seemed pretty hopeless, I think. Yeah. She's very cynical, very anti, like she doesn't, like a lot of times there's somebody that are closed off. She truly doesn't believe in true love. Like she believes you can love somebody, but she doesn't believe there's one person made for somebody else. And she thinks that everybody has the potential to cheat. And she thinks that there are a million other people that might be right for you and people just kind of make it work. So, yeah, it would be pretty bleak and hopeless if it was only her POV. Well, and also in terms of, like, I would have thought, oh, there's no way they're going to get have any interest between the two of them ever. <laughs> and then also well, her her bleak point of view kind of makes sense after dating Stuart. Right, right. Think, yeah, it's interesting, too, because, like, with the dual point of view, I think that you can really show what makes the other person attractive, which yes. is really difficult to do when it's like one point of view, like, have you seen my... Right. <laughs> I find that so... romance, but I'm like, just, if, 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 you're, if you're driving the car, I was just, you know, pulling my fisherman sweater to show a little neck. <laughs> I find it now that I've switched to dual POV after doing, you know, my first two one single, I'm positive that I will never go back. Unless there was some definitive reason that somebody was like, you need to do it this reason, you know, because of this reason, because it's so much easier because we, I don't ever want to read a book where the main character is looking in the mirror telling us, you know, that she has big blue eyes or something, you know, I mean, it's so much better to have them be like, her eyes are so freaking cool, you know, like, yeah, 
so much so more fun. Yeah. Tell us how, how do you get in and really sink into Max's point of view? Like, how do you think like a man? I don't know. That's a really hard question. I feel like it just comes from a whole lifetime of reading romance and reading a lot of dual POV. I mean, I'm sure a lot rubs off from the fact that I have a husband and three sons and I'm around boys all the time. But no, actually, I'm going to retract that because I know that my husband doesn't ever think these thoughts that Max has. It's absolutely me writing a man the way I want a man to be. Writing. I know. I love like, that. So like, I just, I just like, had this image of you at your house, right? You go to the kitchen with your robe. Yeah. And your no. husband's, your husband's like, oh my God, <laughs> you are amazing. Can I make you eggs? Yeah, no, absolutely not. I mean, that, my house saw- is obviously like that. <laughs> right, right. Like if you saw me in the kitchen, no man, woman, or person on the planet would ever be like, wow. They would be like, oh my, what happened to this person? You know, but, but I do feel like absolutely. I will never argue if somebody is like, that is just a man written by a woman. Like that's a little unrealistic. That's probably true. I love writing the male point of view the way I want it to be. So it is what it is. Well, one thing I would love to commend you on is the way that you have two characters who are both totally resistant, and yet there is that little kernel of hope in them (laughs) too. And to me, this just feels so much like the way so many people approach things now. You know, I was reading this forum recently about how online dating has ruined everything. Everyone's disposable. Romance is dead. And (laughs) everyone's been hurt so many times, they say, like, I guess some people were saying 10 years of swiping, my God, that it it makes logical sense that people would kind of end up, I mean, your characters weren't doing that, but it makes sense that they'd end up in the same emotional place as your characters, Mm -hmm. like this, this deeper level this deep like you know no you won't make me do that that's not even real right can you talk about how you created that and do you think that's where romance novels are going to like echo how people are feeling I don't know if it was intentional honestly I feel like and I used to roll my eyes when you'd hear authors in interviews and they would be like oh my characters led me in a different direction and I was I would always be like come on you're writing it stop talking like that but you know when you're writing something sometimes it absolutely you have it outlined and plotted out one way and you start writing it and they kind of do take on a life of their own and take you in a different direction. But I feel like we're all pretty aware of the realities of what things are like now. So I think it's just kind of accidentally reflected in what I write because it just, I, I feel like, like when you watch a rom-com movie, the reason why I feel like a lot of us see them as comfort movies and enjoy them is because there's all the cringe in the middle. You know, everybody's having embarrassing things happen to them and it's terrible, but you can make it through all that because you know it's got the guaranteed happy ending. And I feel like writing about dating now, it's kind of become that way where if it was like in real life, like a big romantic sweeping story almost feels a little bit inauthentic. Like like old school romance, like bringing flowers and all of this, like it's lovely, but I feel like it's just as lovely like a rom-com movie, the way we go through it now where I guess online dating is the cringe. Not that online dating is cringy, but the things you go through and the hurts and the swiping for five years, all of that is the cringe part of your rom-com before you find that happy ending. I don't know if that makes sense if I'm saying it the way I'm hearing it in my head, but I do feel like it's just, I don't know if it's the way they're going 
but I would guess yes, because it's the way things are going. But I still feel like there's a hopefulness. Like, I feel like you have to go through all of the nonsense through online dating and stuff. But I still feel like it all boils down to chemistry between two people and the connection. And you get there eventually. You may need to have a ter- you know, a whole lot of terrible ones. But eventually you get there, I like to think. Hmm. So can we talk about how you structured this? Because a lot of rom-coms and romance novels kind of stretch out what you had. Can you talk about how you maintain tension, even as your characters are thrown into really close quarters and even as all kinds of things happen to them? Okay, I will tell you that I am terrible at like pacing and plotting. Like recently somebody pointed out to me and blamed it on my ADHD, like the way your brain works, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, I don't know if that's true or not, but I feel like naturally I always want a book to be really fast paced. And and a lot of times I have to go back and do lots of edits because I'll have lots of jumping around like this scene. And then it'll cut to the next scene. Instead of that nice flow of the entire arc, I like jump back and forth. So I don't know. That's a hard question for me because I feel like a lot of times I just write it as I see it nonsensically. Like I've tried reading the craft books, like, you know, the cat book and all of those. And I really struggle with that. I have a theory. Okay. Okay. My theory is that in romance, you maintain tension when you don't know for sure how the other person feels. That is a great answer. I wish I would have had that 30 seconds ago and I could have just Well, well, let's unpack this. Like, you do that really well. Can you talk about some of the beats where you purposely make sure that we don't know? Everything I write, my editors are usually like, why are they kissing already? And I have a very hard time maintaining that distance because I'm a sucker for happiness and conflict is hard for me. So that is very difficult for me. So a lot of times I do end up writing them earlier than probably... I should, or the the books say we should. So I I feel like what I really tried to do in this is a lot of times there'll be moments where they come together, but then, you know, a lot of times your brain overrides your feelings. So, so they might have a moment where you're like, is this happening? And then right away after something happens, you know, Sophie is like, okay, that was only because of this one thing. And he's like, yeah, 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 you're right. That wasn't actually feelings. It was because of this. So then they walk away from it. And they go back to, you know, the pioneer or whatever. And then there's another moment where, you know, maybe a, a, a bigger moment of chemistry, but then they can still walk away and be like, but we don't want to do that because we yeah. like being friends. So, so I feel like I'm lazy and that I want to smash them together right away. So then I have to use their brains to override after the near smashing and be like, no, no, we were just kidding. So. And you throw in plausible deniability in a really cool way. Just when I thought, oh my gosh, where is she going to go from here? We still have a hundred pages to go. Um, Then we have a moment that really backtracks in a really interesting way. But I just, I thought it was so cool how you created a situation that I thought was going to kill all the tension. What are we going to do for the next hundred pages? And then you flip it and it's no longer what we thought it was. It was all an experiment basically yeah and I did have fun with playing um like after the thing we're not saying that you're talking about having you know like Max be the one to say okay let's pump the brakes because we don't want this let's just go back to this and then having it kind of backfire because then that makes Sophie maybe be like but do we have to so I had a lot of fun playing with each of them trying to manipulate their own feelings to make this 
partnership work. Yeah. Well, I thought the first kiss was great. I actually marked that down and it reminded me, have you read Julie Soto's Forget Me Not? Oh my God. Uh, I love that book. Yeah. And it reminded me of that because it just, I felt like one of the things I appreciated, and I think both the books did that, is that allowing, you know, instead of having the man chase the woman, having Sophie B, she kissed him, like she did it. And having her have her own you know, not the damsel in distress, which I guess she kind of started that way a little bit, but really she, she was, that was quick, that quickly switched over. Yeah. 20 somethings right now are such a smart generation. Mm. And I feel like you've captured that. It's very different from like a 1950s romance <laughs> that, that we talked about or, or something like that. Like to have romance that works now from, for like YA to this next generation, I think you have to have assertive females that are really heavily into their own power. And you did that so beautifully. And that's kind of what I wanted is to make it not, I, you know, because a lot of times it's like we swing too far the other way. And then you're like, oh, the woman is super sexually aggressive. I mean, I mean, and this part isn't even sexual. It's a kiss. But I wanted to just make it even, you know, I mean, it didn't need to be like, oh, this is the woman going after it. It was just two people this is their life and how they go after it instead of having her have to wait for the guy to step forward. So I'm glad you like that. Cause you know, you never know. You're like, did it hit the way I wanted it to hit? So I hope you didn't get any pushback on that front. No, I didn't at all. I didn't at all. My editor at Berkeley is amazing and I love her and she was great. So we love Berkeley. I love Berkeley. There was one moment I thought was so brilliant for showing the subtext of something. So they were fake dating. They were taking a picture together and they were thinking of what to title it so that they're not technically lying, but so that they give their parents the impression that they are very much in love and dad can go ahead, sell the house and retire to Florida. By the boat. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And it was so funny because if we zoom right into that from Instagram perspective, we've got this cute picture of them and we've got it titled, Sometimes You Just Know. But then they laugh at each other and they're like, yeah, sometimes you just know you want ice cream. And he's like, wait, how'd you know that I just want ice cream? I just, I thought that was so cute because it's like, it's the exact same words, but you can interpret them so many different ways. And I feel like that's, that's such a thing in, in romantic comedies. And I, I really liked that scene. Well, I'm so glad. I thought that was really fun too. Cause I was trying to think of, you know, cause you see celebrities do that all the time where it's like, they're always, they'll post like one picture and it'll just say like, you know, like Saturdays. And then everybody's like, but you know, this person's in Greece on this Saturday too. So does this mean they're officially dating? And I was like, that'd be really fun to play with it. So I had a blast trying to think of what's a good caption for that. Well, in the way of revealing just enough information, but still letting people wonder, I feel like it's a big function of the genre too. Yeah, absolutely. So if your characters were to give romantic advice, what would they say at the beginning? And what would they say at the end? At the beginning, I feel like Max would be more just like, don't be an idiot. It's not worth it. Like he, I feel like Max is very typical, someone who's been burned, who doesn't necessarily not believe in love, but he wants nothing to do with it because, you know, it sucks to feel that way. So he would just be like, you know, bro, don't do it. Or, you know, <laughs> don't be a fool for a woman sort of a thing, you know? And I feel like Sophie would have a lot more of a clinical, like, no, you don't want to do that. You know, look for, if you have to find somebody to, you know, to, to be paired off with, you know, look for these traits 
because it will be a partnership. You know, like she would think of it very, she would give very logical clinical advice for the same as you would looking for a roommate or a business partner. So that's how she would go about it, I think. And at the end? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Other half of the answer. I feel like at the end, Max, you know, what's funny is now after the whole Travis Kelsey, Taylor Swift thing, whenever I think about Max, I picture him as Travis Kelsey, even though I didn't when I was writing it, because he's got that same sort of, I don't know, kind of laid back, smiling energy. And I feel like after the facts, he would be more like, you just got to, you just got to go with it. Like, like, I don't feel like his opinion on it would have changed that much. You know, because he still, he'd always sort of believed it was possible, but he didn't want to deal with it then. And then he would be like, sometimes it works. I feel like he would be more like that. And I feel right. like Sophie wouldn't want to admit she was wrong. I just feel like Sophie, her answer wouldn't be that different. But she would have a caveat now, like, but sometimes you never know it might work out. Like, it's possible. Do you happen to remember, did you ever watch Sex in the City? I did not. There was an episode of Sex and the City where Miranda pretends that she is a secretary so that men will like her. She's a lawyer most of the time, but she found <laughs> that pretending she was a secretary in that day and age would make her love life go much better. So, you know, I generally found the show depressing, but <laughs> I just wanted to say how happy I am to see a romantic female character lead, a romantic female lead who is on track to be senior vice president. Can you talk more about that? Well, I just really... It's hard for me when I'm writing a story to decide what I want their careers to be. Because as somebody who's just always been a silly hearted daydreamer who got lucky and, and and write books now, I've never been very driven in a career. But I just, it, it seems like it's always super stereotypical. Like the guy always has the big career and the girl does not. Or she wants to someday, but she's, you know, an intern. And I just thought it would be fun to have them both be completely set in what they're doing and have her be completely unapologetic that she wants what she wants and she's going to keep working at a job where her awful ex is and she's going to do whatever it takes because she knows she deserves the job and she works hard. So so I, I enjoyed giving that to someone. Could you tell us about the day she stops insulting Stuart? Okay, that was one of my favorite things. You know, so many times in romance novels, it's the micro things. As a reader and a writer, you kind of enjoy she keeps basically for anybody for when you, everybody who hasn't read the book, she works with her ex who cheated on her, whose wedding fault, you know, she ends up calling off the wedding, but she is not going to quit, even though she has to see him every day because she's in line for a promotion. And she's like, I'm not going to let this jerk ruin it for me. So I'll just deal with it. So every day when she walks in, her company has this whole silly good morning policy where they feel like it's important wherever you, everybody you see you yell good morning to. So you walk into the office and basically everybody's desk you walk by. They're like, good morning, Sophie. Good morning, Sophie. And so every day when she walks in, you know, she gets this and she'll say back like, you know, good morning, Jim. Good morning, Bob. And then if Stuart says good morning, she quietly will say like, good morning, jerk. You know, she'll come up with creative insults every single day. And then once she starts running around with Max, doing their ejecting and stuff, she doesn't even realize that she comes in the office one day, they do her good mornings, and she doesn't realize that she says good morning, Stuart, and then she gets an IM when she gets to her desk, and Stuart's like, are you okay? And she's like, what? And he's like, you didn't insult me. And then she has this moment where she's like, I'm healing, like I didn't insult him, and I didn't even realize it because I don't care anymore, you know, so it's kind of kind of fun to add that little little tiny micro thing. Did you have other favorite micro moments? Well, I would just, I, I just wanted to point out as you're thinking that 
I thought of a micro thing to do that's like out of a scene that I was like, oh, just by her saying that, I realized I have a scene and this is the one micro thing I can do within it. It's going to make it 20 times better. I do love those things. Even though I'm drawing a blank, I love when you can think of one of those things and make it work. Well, it's because the details, the tiny details are the joy of the story and the details tell the story. Actually, someone says, I think it was like Lily King always said when I was in a class with her, maybe it was Susan Conley, but like, it's not really the car crash, right? It's what they were saying, you know, right before the car crash. It's, 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 it's the things true. around it. Absolutely. Well, and I loved like, there was a scene where Sophie is with Max and they go to a coffee shop and Stuart's there. And and when you're able to have those like side-by-side moments where Stuart is wearing all of the expensive running gear. You know, he's all geared up from head to toe. And Max is like just wearing, I can't remember what he's wearing, but like, you know, a cutoff, not cutoff t-shirt, like a belly shirt, but like sleeves hacked off, just running shorts and shoes. And it's like, that's how the two guys each run. And it's fun to draw like minor comparisons like that where she's not comparing them. But as a reader, you're like, oh, so that's who these two people are, you know? So I guess that's kind of a fun way to paint it. I mean, you did do a great job making Stuart really annoying. Julie, do you want to give up? We could give out a copy of a book sure. with a code word. Lynn, give us a code word. And the first person who emails it to us, we will send them um, a copy of your book. Spaghetti. <laughs> That's the code word. Okay. Spaghetti. So the first person to email academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with spaghetti in the subject line will get a copy of this book. Um, what so advice do you have for people who want to enter the rom-com genre now? I guess it's that you love reading rom-coms because I feel like for a lot of years I was writing a lot of like angsty romance and getting nowhere and then I realized way later that I probably shouldn't have been writing that I don't like angst I like rom-com you know and so I guess it's if, if that's the thing you like read a lot of it and make sure you you try to work in the calm because there's a lot of books that call rom-coms now I can't even get the words right Rom-com, and then you read it and you're like, it was a good romance, but it wasn't really like fun. Like I like them to feel like a rom-com movie, you know? So I guess that would be my advice is I try when I'm plotting it and stuff to think of it almost visually. Like how would this work in a rom-com movie? Like here's the first scene where this is happening. You know, then there's, there's the musical transition to the scene where he comes to her hotel room to get paid, you know? So I guess for me, it works to think about it that way. Yeah. And I mean, just looking at you and how you speak and how you kind of move through the world, I can't imagine you writing angsty romance. Like, of course you write rom-com. <laughs> like, it's almost ridiculous to think you didn't write rom-com, right. rom-com you know? Like, I exactly. wish that's one of the things, if I could go back to myself 15 years ago, wanting to make something happen faster, I would be like, really think about what you should be writing. Because I spent a lot of years writing like I said, probably fine examples of romance, but not what I should have been writing. Like when I write rom-com, I can't wait to sit down and write more. Like I'm sad every day when I'm like, oh, I have to go get my kid from school. Not sad to see my children, but like, oh, I have to wait a whole other day before I get to sit down and do it again, you know? So I guess write what makes you feel that way, you know? And write your essential beat too, right? Like if you're, if you move through the world pretty funny, you know what I mean? Or yeah. quippy or, you know, then you should probably lean into that. Right, right. You know, if, if you are a moody thinker, a dreamer, write something a little slower. Like, right. I think we often try to jump into something that we aren't 
And I don't know why that is. I don't either, but absolutely. I feel like that's true. Can you talk about the presentation Sophie makes at the end to express her feelings? Oh, she, she comes, Sophie comes to the realization that, oh my God, I do have feelings for Max. Like this is terrible. And instead of just being like somebody else would, where you just admit it, you know, she sits down and comes with a whole PowerPoint and she starts to, to tell Max and he's kind of getting a little irritated because she keeps looking at her phone when it feels like she should be making some big sweeping, you know, statement. And so then he like gets irritated with her for looking at her phone. And she's like, kind of like, would you stop interrupting? And she's trying to get to a third point, you know? And then finally, you know, when he's like, you know, stop, stop, just tell me. And then she's like, what do you want me to say? And then she's like, do you want me to say that I hate the way this feels? And then he's like, yes. And then they kind of have a realization that way. It honestly admits things in a way that's uncomfortable to her, but ends up, you know, of course, making things fantastic in fiction. I love how she asks if he has any availability on his calendar. (laughs) Right. Like she's learned to cope by leaning into what works for her in the rest of her life, I think. And, And that was kind of fun to play with that a little bit. Also, because I'm such a mess. Like literally if like my publicist emailed me last night, like, don't forget you have a podcast in the morning. I was like, oh my God, I have a calendar, but I don't, I literally don't know where I put it. So I would have forgotten. So, so it was kind of fun to write somebody who's not a mess like me. It was kind of fun to do that. Cause my husband's like that. Like everything is in his calendar. He forgets nothing. Like he'll literally like every year on February 1st, he's got a reminder that goes off to go to Target and get Kate's Valentine's for school. Like he's so organized and I'm not. So it was really fun to kind of like take his characteristics and put it on her because he works in HR too, like she does. So I I think I kind of made a female version of my husband in Sophie. That's so cute that he gets the Valentine's. Oh my gosh. He's so, it's ridiculous. Like (laughs) our world functions because he's all over it. There was a line I really like talking about how together she is from Max's point of view. He says she looks like she could calculate quadratic equations and forecast an annual budget without ever ruining her lipstick. Well, I was trying. I know that exact scene. It's like when they first meet up after the wedding, he objects like a few months later when she agrees to meet with him. And I had a lot of fun with that one because I was like, let's completely change her appearance. Like when she was getting married, she had long brown hair, a lot like yours. You have gorgeous hair, by the way. But, you know, it was all piled on top of her head and she was this beautiful bride. And I love for him to be sitting at Starbucks and be like, hey, there's a hot blonde, you know, and he's describing this blonde with, you know, like a shoulder, you know, like mid cut bob and lipstick and glasses. And then all of a sudden he, she orders her drink and he knows her voice and he's like, and a blazer, it's getting right. jeans, he's like, oh my God, yeah, got her Apple watch. And he's like, oh my God, that's the girl, you know, that's her. And and so it's kind of fun to, to show her that way. Kind of like you said earlier about with dual POV, how fun it is to describe somebody because he's able to see her that way. Like, right. ooh, she looks hot and smart. And then he's like, whoa. One of your, my favorite um, details that you put in is, that's a girl. He has an Apple Watch and actually use, you know, put some miles on it or actually yeah, use it. the crap out of it. Yeah. Because yeah. that's totally, again, my husband, like him and I, I have an Apple Watch and right now it is dead. I'm not wearing it because I forget to charge it and I use it to look at what time it is. And my husband, that thing like reminds him once an hour 
to walk for five minutes to make sure, you know, he's not being too sedentary. Like he uses the crap out of it. And I thought that was really a fun way for him to be like, that's who she is. Okay. I get it. Right. But I think we all know that person in, in, in a relationship. There's always someone that's like, Jessica's looking at me. I'm always like, where, what time, where are we going? What, which one are we reading? <laughs> oh no. I was actually wondering which one you thought each of us was. I, I feel like you're all over everything and I feel like you're more like me, but probably a much better version. <laughs> Not nearly as messy as I am. My sister always jokes that her her husband, what does he call her? He he says it always seems like she just woke up. Like she's always like the school will send out a message and she's like, what? When is that happening? And he's like, that is you every day. Like, what? What's going on? And he's like, it's like you missed every memo ever. And I'm kind of like that too, where I'm always like, I don't know. But it worked out. It did work out. It did work out. See, there are so many lines in here that I wanted to ask you about. I think, okay, so Sophie has a roommate who appears to be in dire straits near the end. And in this moment of life being short, gives her some advice. Will you tell us more about that scene? Right, right. Like essentially like he has maybe a health crisis. And, you know, when she's of course, like by his bedside worried about him, he gives the advice like essentially like, what are you waiting around for? Why are you, you know, letting things that are obvious go because you're scared, you know, like embrace this stuff. And then she does in her own special way. And then we find out that it wasn't a medical emergency. It was faked for his own purposes. Right. <laughs> I had a lot of fun with her roommates. Sometimes side characters are just the most fun to write because somebody once said, you know, like, oh, you should make this character write their book. And I was like, gosh, no, that would be too hard to make an erratic, like bonkers character make sense. But when there are side characters in a book where you can just show their strange behaviors, it's so much fun. So I loved her roommates. Like they, they were the most fun to write. And just because I loved your acknowledgement section, tell us about your petite partners. Tell us how they support you, how, how that all works out. Okay, you know what's funny is I have never had, I've always been jealous. Everybody always has like, oh, my CPs. And, and you know, I've never had anybody who's like a critique partner. And when I got my, my deal with Berkeley, I got a DM on Instagram from an author, Sarah Grunder Ruiz. She wrote like love lists and fancy ships. And she was like, hey, there's some of us debuts for Berkeley. You know, no, nobody's books had come out yet who have like a little group chat on Discord. Do you want to join? And I was like, what's discord but i'm like cool that sounds great and i joined and it's funny because it's it was a group of i, I there's probably 10 maybe 12 of us and over now it's been years but just chatting on discord none of us having any idea what was going on in the book world but then being able to share stuff back and forth has been such a joy like i'm not good at making grown up friends like i don't i i'm just not and so I don't have like writer friends in the real, real world. So this was like such a blessing that it just dropped in via DM. And, I, and then it's been really fun too, because all of our books came out like in different ways and at different times. Like one of them is Allie Hazelwood, who's, you know, a monster superstar now. And like in one of my books, I named the high school like Hazelwood High because it was just my friend Allie. And at the time her book hadn't even come out. Who knew she'd be like a mega superstar and not need my little like, here, I'll name a school after you now. I bet she liked it though. Yeah, I'm sure she did. But she, I mean, she's the most delightful human on the planet. But it's just funny now that she could probably have a school actually named after her. Not my little, but but it was such a joy. And then some of my friends, they aren't even, 
you know, we, we've all came out at different times and write different things, but it's just so nice to have those friends that you can trust to give you their opinion on your work and to, to give it right back. And it's been joyful. It's one of those things I'm so grateful for because I feel like in writing, you truly never know what's going on. Maybe if you're like Ann Patchett or Roxanne Gay, maybe you actually know what's going on. For the rest of us, you can have books out there and you still don't. It's it's like a shrouded in mystery kind of industry. Well, is it kind of like in a romance, you don't know exactly how everyone else feels. As a writer, you don't know exactly how publishing feels or readers feel or, or right. any of that. That's a hundred percent true. That's exactly how it is. You like, you think you're reading it, but you're like, I don't actually know if that's true though. You don't ever know. So, so I'm just curious, how, do you guys, as relationship start in discord, do you guys get together? Do you guys occasionally and see each other at conferences? That must some be so of much have, fun. And it's been so delightful. Like, like we live all over. So it's like the ones who live in the New York area. I feel like they ever, you know, you'll, they'll post a picture every once in a while. Well, they'll get together, but like, there's a few of them and I that we've gone to. Last year, we went to Steamy LitCon, so we got together last August, and we rented a house that we all stayed in, so it was so much fun. Like, the conference was great, but I think it was more of a trip of just, like, hanging out with them in person, and it's so funny, like, going back to when we were talking about dating in the modern world and, and you know, on the internet and stuff, that modern friendships, I feel like so many of us, especially through, like, Bookstagram and stuff... You have people that you genuinely consider a friend that you've never met in real life. And it's so interesting when you get all of the meeting each other out of the way online. It's like these people you get together with and you're like, I feel like I've known them for 20 years. Like they're such good friends. And and so like this summer I went to Austin for um to see relatives, but I did a book signing there and Allie Hazelwood lives there. So it's like she did the launch with me, but then my daughter and I went over to her house and like met her cats and like just Aww. it's it's been such like this incredible blessing by the way I will tell you she is hysterical her and her husband love animals and they have like they live in this area like my father-in-law when we were in, he was showing us around the town they live in and he's like this neighborhood over here it was kind of woodsy you know he says it almost like in a bad way like he's like the people here they always feed the deer so there's hundreds of deer because the people feed him and blah, blah. And he's saying it like it's really negative. Like, oh, these people, you know. So then later that day, I'm at my in-laws and then I'm leaving them because I'm like, my daughter and I are going to go have dinner with Allie. So we're like, okay, you know, we'll see you later. And I'm driving to her house using my, you know, navigation. And I'm like, oh, my God, she lives in the neighborhood where the idiots feed all the deer. And we go to her house and there's deer in her yard then her husband like shows me like, or he shows my daughter, he's like, watch this. And he puts food out in the backyard and we go back inside and it's all these raccoons, like they're feeding raccoons. And it was the sweetest thing ever. But anyways, I'm sorry, I went off on a total tangent there, but basically I've gotten together with some of them and it's delightful and amazing and I love them. <laughs> so nice. Yeah, it's true. The internet has made friendship, I think, in many ways better and romance yes. in many ways worse. Right, right. I think that's 100% accurate. I don't know. And I think that's one of the most special things about writing is that it is, it, it's it, the people you meet, right? We, t- yes. we say that all the time, but like sitting around someone's table with really good writers yes. is amazing. It is. It really, really is. Yeah, it's special. Just out of curiosity, what is Spaghetti Works? You acknowledge them in your <laughs> acknowledgments. I acknowledge them in every book. It's just my favorite restaurant in Omaha. I feel like it's almost more something most 
adults grow out of. It's essentially like all you can eat spaghetti. They have other food there too, but it's my favorite spaghetti. And so when I was writing, accidentally it became like every time something good would happen in writing, I would text my husband and be like, we're getting spaghetti works to celebrate. So like when I got an agent, I went to spaghetti works. Then when we went on a submission, I went to spaghetti works. And then when I was sad because we shelved the book, my husband's like, you deserve spaghetti works. So then when I got a book deal, spaghetti works. So it's been there all the time with me. It's my comfort food. I hope they put a plaque somewhere. Like when <laughs> I don't think here. they know I exist. I'm writing love songs about them and they don't even know Lynn exists. Oh. That's okay though. I love their spaghetti. As long as they don't ever go out of business, that's all I need. Spaghetti meatballs. Someone sent me a, a video of an all-you-can-eat cheese restaurant. It's on a conveyor belt, and you just, like, take a little plate off the conveyor belt. I've what? watched it five times on your Instagram. Every I know. Time I've watched like, it I can't so stop many watching times. It. it. It comes under a little, I think it's called a cloche, the little, like, the glass thing. And so it's, like, a little bit of cheese and, like, a little bit of jam or, like, a Stilton with a brownie. And, yeah, that just. And I just looked up Spaghetti Works, and they have white cheddar cheese curds. Yes, please. Yeah, I've never had those. I have been going there. Like my dad was like, I think we went there once a week when I was a kid because my dad was one of those like, like when you go there at 430, it's busy and it's all like guys like my dad, like, oh, I am a man who wants to inhale as much spaghetti as I possibly can. Like, it's definitely like the all you can eat crowd. Like all the farmers must drive into town, you know? And I'm right there with him, like, yeah. But yeah, we've always gone there. I'm I'm just a simp for spaghetti works. Mm -hmm. um, you introduced the concept of them kissing each other for themselves. Please elaborate. I don't know where that came from. But I, you know, Sophie does a lot in her own head to justify and also in an unforgiving way about romance. And so after she breaks up with Stuart, she starts realizing some of these things like that she enjoys doing for herself. Like now, you know, whether it be watching TV or how you decorate the apartment, no one else's opinion matters. I'm doing it for me. This is how I want it. So then when they go out um, to object at a wedding, there's some chemistry and she decides that she wants to kiss him for himself. Like, you don't even need to be here. I just want to kiss you the way I want to kiss. So she kisses them. And of course, it's romance. So it's a majestical kiss that's wonderful. But then when she's done, he also is kind of a little like when she's like talking about how amazing it is. And he's kind of like, yeah. And then she's like, I mean, you didn't even have to be there. Like it was all me. That was just how I wanted to do it. But then, of course, he has to turn it around later. And after another time they're together, he's like, so this whole kissing for yourself. It only seems fair. I should be able to do it too, right? And she's like, yeah, I guess so. And then he's like, kind of like, I want to kiss you up against a wall and, and throwing stuff where it was like, oh. So I had a lot of fun with that. Like the whole idea of doing it only for yourself. Like there's another person there, but you're absolutely doing it for what you want out of it, which sounds like a terrible concept. You know, <laughs> like he's only in it for himself. But since they're like cerebrally exploring this, it's kind of the opposite of that somehow. Well, if it is a spectrum, I would say many women probably are more on the, how do I make sure that I look cute? Yes. See, and that's what I think it is, is when you think about your first kiss or many kisses, you're just thinking about like, am I doing it right? Am I doing it good? You know, like, is this how I should do it? You know, how does my, should I turn my head or how does my hair look at this moment? And that's exactly what it is. If Sophie was like, 
I don't care about anything. I'm going to get what I want out of this kiss. So it was like the the joy that came out of probably what it would be like to be a man, to only be focused on the kiss and nothing about how you are playing into it. Well, we talk sometimes about how human brains need to see an example of something to believe that it exists. And often story is the best way to do this. And so if anything, I think you are perhaps doing a public service to the ladies who are reading this and thinking, wow, I don't have to be focused on what he thinks the whole time. Okay. I love that. Now all of a sudden I'm like, you know, I'm going to put some sort of promo out there. Like girls, you go out there and do this. Oh my gosh. Can I, I I would love to see that public service campaign. What would it, what would it say? What would it look like? I don't know. Like, huh. I need to give this some thought. Basically just encouraging Don't worry about anything except what you want out of the kiss. Don't think about how you look, what you're doing. Tie your hands behind your back and just enjoy, you know? I don't know. (laughs) Well, I wish there were more healthy, happy public service announcements like that. (laughs) Instead of like, your stove can kill you. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) Do you have your monoxide detector? Have you you ever visited Camp Lejeune? (laughs) So what is your number one advice for writers? My number one advice probably is to set aside regular time to write, even if it's 30 minutes, and and don't do anything else but that. Only because I feel like I was stalled out in anything happening until I made that change. And that's when I feel like my writing got a lot better and, and it just, I got a lot closer. I mean, it could have been a coincidence, but I feel like it wasn't until I carved out time that it all started to happen for me. Well, I'm so glad you did. Thank you. Me too. And I hope you get lots of nice letters from your readers too. Oh, thank you. Lynn, this was great. Thank you so, so much for being here. This was such a fun read. And um, yeah, I I hope you get many, many nice letters from your readers. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. I could talk to you guys all day. This was awesome. (laughs) Thank you, Lynn. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. It not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.